mutual, mutual, ba-da-da-da. Mutual, mutual, ba-da-da-da. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My fellow Americans, last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. And so, in this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed. But we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. They will be sore tried by night and by day without rest until the victory is won. On August 11th and 12th, 2017, a large public rally was held in Charlottesville, Virginia, attended by a variety of right-wing groups, including reactionary political clubs, paramilitary squads, white power organizations, neo-Nazi fascists, and the modern incarnation of the Ku Klux Klan. The goal was supposedly to protest the gradual removal of various memorials and monuments to the Confederacy throughout the South, all of which had been erected in the 20th century in an attempt to redefine the meaning of the U.S. Civil War and erase any gains towards racial equality made since then. But the real idea behind the rally was to unite this motley assortment of smaller hate groups into one massive, unstoppable juggernaut of rage, fear, and loathing. In this respect, the rally was a complete failure. There were several incidents of brutal violence perpetrated by the hate groups on counter-protesters, with the police either passively watching or actively defending the ralliers, culminating with the murder of a woman named Heather Hare by professed neo-Nazi James Alex Fields Jr., when Fields rammed into her with his car, maiming and injuring 30 other bystanders in the process. As a result, the various groups, already mistrustful of each other, fell into their usual infighting and finger-pointing. For most Americans, the Charlottesville rally came as a shock. They might have had some vague sense that such right-wing hate groups existed, but this event showed that they were more active and popular than ever, and that law enforcement officials had little to no interest in their activity, let alone actively policing them. 
Those same Americans were shocked even further when President Donald Trump refused to outright condemn the fascists and other hate groups, saying that there were, quote, good people on both sides, unquote. In this respect, the rally was a tremendous victory for the forces of the far right. It gave them undeniable proof that they had at least passive acceptance and possibly even active support from the seat of executive government in the most powerful nation on earth. But for some Americans, neither the rally nor the aftermath came as a surprise. The forces of fascism in various forms had been gathering strength for years, a process that was obvious if you knew where to look. Finding where that process begins is more difficult. You could trace it back to August 2014, when the Gamergate online harassment campaign completed the takeover of the internet by the forces of reactionary conservatism. You could trace it back to the global financial collapse of 2007-2008, which wiped out the economic prospects of millions of men, leading to a cycle of anger, shame, isolation, and radicalization. You could trace it back to the election of Barack Obama in 2008, or the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, or the creation of Fox News in 1996. But the forces at work in Charlottesville in 2017 had been around for a long time. To follow those dark traces, to dig out the deepest roots of fascism and pseudo-fascism in the U.S., you have to go back to about 74 years ago. In April of 1944, the Second World War was raging at its height in Europe, Asia, and the Pacific. The Empire of Japan launched Operation Ichigo, a massive offensive against nationalist China and one of the largest operations of the entire war. Allied forces were attempting to train in earnest for their landing on the beaches at Normandy, which would happen two months later, without tipping off the Axis about their invasion plans. The world outside Central Europe was beginning to understand the huge scope of the network of prison camps and death camps instituted by the Nazis. All of the music and broadcasts you'll hear, by the way, date from 1944. On April 17th of that year, a little-noticed trial got underway in Washington, D.C. There were about 33 defendants charged with violating the Alien Registration Act of 1940, more commonly known as the Smith Act. The Smith Act was designed to help the powers that be stamp out any seditious activity within the U.S. that might be attempting to undermine the government and or the war effort. The Smith Act required all non-citizen adult residents to register with the federal government, so they could be closely monitored and easily arrested, jailed, and deported if necessary. They were expected to report to their local post office to be fingerprinted and cataloged along with their children. Once the U.S. joined the Allied powers in 1941, almost 3,000 of these men, women, and children were arrested and detained because they were citizens of nations affiliated with the Axis. But the Smith Act went beyond surveilling possible foreign enemies within U.S. borders. It also made it a criminal offense to print, publish, edit, issue, circulate, sell, distribute, or publicly display any written or printed matter advocating, advising, or teaching the duty, necessity, desirability, or propriety of overthrowing or destroying any government in the United States by force or violence or attempts to do so or to organize or help or attempt or to organize any society, group, or assembly of persons who teach, advocate, or encourage the overthrow or destruction of any such government by force or violence or become a, or a member of or affiliate with any such society, group, or assembly of persons knowing the purposes thereof.
If this sounds completely and obviously unconstitutional to you, you're not wrong. But the basic idea behind the Smith Act, that free speech and freedom of assembly could and should be suspended in the United States during wartime, goes back at least as far as the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. Also keep in mind that by 1944, over 5,000 Japanese Americans from the West Coast had been sitting in internment camps for two years. It shouldn't come as a surprise that the government willing to do that to its own citizens would ban unpatriotic speech. But it's also not exactly a coincidence that these laws have always been used to prosecute particular enemies of the political establishment, and the Smith Act was no exception. The Smith Act was named for Representative Howard W. Smith, a Democrat from Virginia. Howard Smith, like many conservatives of the 1930s and 40s, was convinced that the U.S. labor movement was just a front for communism to gain a foothold in America and undermine it from within. He would later be known for his outspoken racism and his steadfast support of segregation, including an attempt to block the U.S. Congress from passing the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In 1940, Smith had intended the legislation named for him to be used to prosecute leftists, especially labor organizers. In fact, it was written specifically to arrest and deport one labor organizer, a man named Harry Bridges, an immigrant from Australia who had organized American longshoremen and warehouse workers into powerful unions. The U.S. government had already tried to deport Harry Bridges in 1939, but since he wasn't currently a member of any communist organizations, they couldn't kick him out of the country just then. The Smith Act fixed that problem by allowing the deportation of any non-citizen who was affiliated with communism either in the present or at any time since their arrival in the U.S. But by the time the government got around to trying again, the Soviet Union was an important ally in the war, and the wholesale persecution of leftists was ramped down, though not eliminated entirely. The government never did succeed in deporting Harry Bridges, for various reasons, but that's another story. Communists could still be arrested and jailed under the Smith Act as long as they were Trotskyites, like the Socialist Workers' Party. And as soon as the war was over, it would be used aggressively against the Communist Party in the United States. But in 1942, the Soviets were allies, however temporarily, and it was the fascists who had attacked Pearl Harbor and declared war on the United States. So, the Roosevelt administration told Attorney General Francis Biddle to use the Smith Act to target a group of people it was never intended for, prominent American fascists and fascist sympathizers. As a result, 30 people were indicted in Washington, D.C. in July 1942 in the case of U.S. versus McWilliams. They were accused of violating the Smith Act by being so anti-Semitic, so fascistic, or so pro-Nazi in their speech that they had represented a danger to the government and thus to American society. It took the administration almost two years to build their case, during which time three more people were indicted. One of the men indicted, Lawrence Dennis, sarcastically referred to it as, quote, the Great Sedition Trial of 1944. The prosecutor, O. John Roga, was the son of German immigrant farmers who had settled in Illinois, and he was a New Deal liberal, as was the presiding judge, Edward C. Eicher, a former congressman from Iowa and chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Roga's goal was to show that the rhetoric of the Americans on trial matched so exactly with the propaganda coming out of Germany, Italy, and Japan that for all intents and purposes, these Americans were doing the work of the enemy. It wasn't exactly an airtight case, and the proceedings weren't made any easier 
by the constant grandstanding and flamboyant drama put on display by the defendants. The trial was almost constantly disrupted by their grandiose, sometimes unhinged behavior, despite Eicher's constant attempts to restore order. But I want to look more closely at who those individuals were. They represent the first generation of truly fascist Americans. Elements of the fascist ideology have been present in American society in some form or another since the 1600s, but the men and one woman on trial in 1944 serve for our present purposes as a convenient stand-in for that large group of Americans that felt and still feel in their hearts closer to Heinrich Himmler and Adolf Eichmann than to Abraham Lincoln and FDR. Before I delve into their stories, I want to give some more definition to how I'm using the term fascism. Like I mentioned earlier, fascism is an ideology, a kind of worldview that manifests itself in various times and places in specific ways. For example, in the 1930s and 40s, Spain, Italy, Romania, Germany, the UK, and the US each had their own particular type of fascism, much like Poland, Hungary, and Croatia do now. This isn't to say that the fascists in these countries have some kind of solidarity with one another, or even resemble each other all that much. Croatian fascism in the 2010s obviously looks very different from Italian fascism of the 1930s. Nevertheless, there are some common elements that always show up within fascism, no matter when or where it appears. The Italian writer and philosopher Umberto Eco cataloged these in his 1995 essay, Ur-Fascism. I want to quickly go through his list because they all apply in some way to the fascism of the United States, in ways that will probably strike you as obvious in 2018. The first is a view of tradition that sees the purpose of learning as a process of uncovering hidden truths rather than expanding the horizon of what can be known. As Echo puts it, quote, There can be no advancement of learning. Truth has been already spelled out once and for all, and we can only keep interpreting its obscure message. This obviously lends itself to mysticism and the occult, which many fascists are fascinated by. Another element is the rejection of the modern world, disguised, Echo says, quote, as a rebuttal of the capitalistic way of life, but mainly concerned with the rejection of the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason, unquote. This irrationalism leads to the cult of action for action's sake. Quote, action being beautiful in itself, it must be taken before or without any previous reflection. Thinking is a form of emasculation. Therefore, culture is suspect insofar as it is identified with critical attitudes." Unquote. Other elements include the fear of the different and an appeal against the intruders. The appeal to a frustrated middle class, a class suffering from an economic crisis or feeling of political humiliation, and frightened by the pressure of lower social groups. The obsession with a nefarious plot in order to make the fascist followers feel besieged and give them a sense of common identity. Enemies that are at the same time too strong, having sometimes secret wealth and power, and too weak, unable to stand up to the fascist's strength. Life is permanent warfare, a constant struggle leading to some apocalyptic final battle that never actually comes. A cult of heroism strictly linked with a cult of death. A hypergendered masculinity that expresses itself through a fascination with weaponry. The reduction of the citizenry to a theatrical fiction. Quote, citizens do not act. They are only called on to play the role of the people. 
A selected group of citizens can be presented and accepted as the voice of the people. Finally, quote, an impoverished vocabulary in an elementary syntax in order to limit the instruments for complex and critical reasoning. Keep those elements in mind as we move forward. Knock it, men, right in yonder. Say, Jack, do you know who's beat to his side? Who's that, man? Nobody but me. What's the matter, bub? Been loading up a tanker all day long. Convoy's supposed to shove off tonight. You know one thing, bub? You really talk too much. In fact, your mouth is too big. Now, my advice to you is... Don't talk too much. Shh. Don't know too much. Jack, don't be too hip, cause a slip of the lip might sink a ship. Shh. Don't see too much. Shh. Don't jive too much. Boy, don't be too hip, cause a slip of the lip might sink a ship. Now the walls have ears and the night has eyes. So let's be wise and trick those nasty, nasty spies. Don't talk too much, shh, don't know too much, boy, don't be too hip, cause the slip of the lip might sink a ship. I'm going to focus on six participants in the 1944 trial. We should begin by talking about Joe McWilliams, the man named in the suit. Joe grew up in Oklahoma, where he rose out of poverty by learning mechanical engineering and designing a better razor blade. He moved to New York City in 1925 at the age of 20 and became a Marxist, who was also known for his good looks. Ten years later, he faced a health crisis, and after his recovery, something in him had changed. He was now rabidly anti-Semitic and sympathized with the nascent fascist movements in Europe. By 1939, he was known as one of the most outspoken supporters of the Nazis in New York. He rode around the city in an old-fashioned Conestoga wagon, the kind he grew up with, covered with a huge American flag. He would periodically stop his wagon to give impromptu harangues to passerby that sometimes turned into spontaneous anti-Semitic rallies. McWilliams railed against the international Jewish conspiracy that was manipulating the U.S. into war, and more generally against Jews, bankers, and communists. He attacked the quote-unquote Jew governor of New York State, Herbert Lehman, and said that New York City Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia was, quote, a Jew parading under an Italian name. McWhorter was often accompanied by a group of young female followers who passed out pamphlets purporting to show the, quote, Jewish ancestry, unquote, of FDR. McWilliams didn't have to work very hard to find enthusiastic crowds. America in 1939 was mostly opposed to getting involved in what they saw as a European war. Admired and respected citizens like Charles Lindbergh, and legislators like Democratic Senator Robert Rice Reynolds of North Carolina were openly sympathetic to the fascist side in that conflict. Lindbergh blamed a cabal of Jewish interests for trying to get the U.S. into the war. His anti-Semitism was influential on an entire generation of Americans, as were the popular radio broadcasts of Father Charles Edward Coughlin. Father Coughlin, a Roman Catholic priest, had been saying for years to his tens of millions of listeners that the Jewish scourge of communism could only be stopped by the forces of Mussolini and Hitler. He blamed the Jews for the violence inflicted on them by the Nazis, saying that since the communists in Russia had killed millions of Christians, quote, Jewish persecution only followed after Christians first were persecuted, unquote. 
Father Coughlin also had his own magazine called Social Justice, which in 1938 had reprinted the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, an old chestnut of anti-Semites, which claimed to expose the Jewish conspiracy to take over the world, but which was in reality a fake document created by some Russian anti-Semites around 1903. Incidentally, Henry Ford, another influential American anti-Semite, paid for half a million copies to be printed and distributed in the 1920s. Father Coughlin was especially influential with the Irish Catholic population in the U.S., which in turn accounted for most members of New York City's police force. That might explain why the police stood by and watched, as Joe McWilliams' improvised ravings would attract unruly crowds that turned into vicious mobs. As McWilliams and his followers chanted, Jew stooges, Jew stooges, the mobs would attack and savagely beat anyone nearby who was Jewish or who looked Jewish or who they just thought might be Jewish. McWilliams was popular enough to start his own organization called the Christian Mobilizers. At one rally in the Bronx on August 13, 1939, McWilliams cried, quote, We'll fix the Jews the way Hitler fixed them. And a police captain named John Collins finally had enough. Captain Collins stepped in to stop the meeting. He was immediately attacked by the screaming mob. When Sergeant Robert McAllister pushed his way into the crowd to save Collins, he was bludgeoned with a lead pipe by someone in the crowd. The rest of the police finally moved in and arrested two ex-convicts for the violence. But the precinct where they were held was then swarmed by members of the Christian mobilizers demanding their release. The 18th Congressional District in New York City was disproportionately German and pro-Nazi. So in 1940, McWilliams decided to run for the open congressional seat there, bolstered by his own popularity and the local fascist sympathies. This brought him national visibility, but not much new support. Popular radio personality Walter Winchell dubbed McWilliams Joe McNazi, while other journalists referred to him as the American Fuhrer. McWilliams' Republican primary opponent was a man named James Blaine Walker Jr. He was the son-in-law of President Benjamin Harrison and the grandnephew of Republican presidential nominee James G. Blaine. In other words, very much the establishment candidate. It was about as mad a campaign season as you might imagine, with McWilliams arrested at one point for disorderly conduct, which is ironic since that describes McWilliams' entire political style. In the end, it wasn't close. Blaine won by a large margin. It turned out that a lot of the Germans in the district weren't fond of the Nazis after all. McWilliams' behavior the night of his loss led to yet another disorderly conduct arrest, and the next day, he was committed to Bellevue Hospital to have his mental fitness analyzed. He was detained there for 68 days, during which time he decided not to give up. He founded a new political party, the American Destiny Party, and decided to run in the general election under its banner, while still in Bellevue. His new party submitted a petition with 4,400 names to get on the ballot, but over 1,900 of those names were found to be invalid, and his candidacy was finally over. He was disowned by the more respectable isolationists who wanted to distance themselves from the obvious bigotry and thuggery of men like him, no matter how much they might ultimately agree with their political aims. Like many other American fascists, Joe McWilliams' stock with the public crashed after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. By the time McWilliams was indicted under the Smith Act, he had mostly faded from the public eye. After the war was over, he briefly worked for the campaign of Senator Reynolds of North Carolina, whom I mentioned earlier, 
before fading into obscurity and passing away in 1996. All day, Allied heavy bombers have been operating in support of the ground troops. They have encountered no fighter opposition. The action so far seems to have been almost too easy. The reputation of the German armies is still considerable, and there is no disposition to discount their power to hit back. There is no official admission that our bridgehead is free from concentrated artillery fire. But the general impression is that we are now in a position to start pouring the material ashore, the tanks and the self-propelled artillery. Eyewitness accounts indicate that all movement has ceased in the area of the attack. The roads and rails carry no traffic. That means that the bombers can now start working further inland. Here is a report from Charles Collingwood, Columbia's correspondent with the Navy, who was with a tank landing craft. He says the first craft onto the beaches were the little LCVPs. They came in doggedly, looking very small and gallant with their heads up. Offshore, several miles, loomed the silhouettes of the big ships. Between them and the beaches milled an assemblage of landing craft of all kinds, forming up, waiting to go in. A few thousand yards offshore, two patrol boats stood a mile or so apart. They marked the starting line. They were just out of range of effective machine gun fire. On those boats, each wave of landing craft dressed like a unit of foot soldiers and were then dispatched to the beach. More and more men reached the beach. At one end of the beach had a little knot of German prisoners began to form. Back among the big ships, the Admiral decided he could now send in his bigger landing vessels, send them into the shore. The LCIs and the LSTs sidled to the starting line and then headed for the beach. An LCI is 155 feet long and carries more than 200 soldiers. When she hits the shore, a ramp is let down from each side and the soldiers pour out onto the beach. An LST is bigger still. She's a great floating garage. When she reaches shore, her mouth opens and trucks and vehicles of every description roll out of her and are lifted by davits from her hold. When these ships go in, the landing is well underway and their cargo is quickly built up the power of the assault. The vicious street mobs of the Christian mobilizers were one type of American fascist in the 1940s. Another type entirely was represented by George Sylvester Vierek. Vierek was a respected author, editor, journalist, and poet. Vierek was older than the other fascists on trial in 1944. He was born in Munich in 1884 to a German father and an American mother. He had a fraught, complicated relationship with his family, and especially his father, whom he both resented and idealized, and associated with a romanticized Germanic heritage. When Vierick was 12, he moved with his family to New York City, where despite various trials and tribulations, he distinguished himself through his writing. So he pursued work as a journalist. In 1914, Vierick married Margaret Hein, whom he had known since they were children. Though he was still obsessed with his father, to the point that he carried on a close relationship with Helena von Doniges, one of his father's former mistresses. That same year, he became active in politics as a reaction to the Great War. Vierek, through his writings, had come to see himself as the public voice of German Americans, especially those who felt they had one foot in the old world by virtue of their family history, and one in the new world, 
through their assimilation into American society. In August 1914, Vierek had founded a weekly newspaper titled The Fatherland, which was popular among the large German immigrant population in New York City. His writing and editing in these and other publications through the 1920s made his name as a writer of note. One of his most popular science books impressed Sigmund Freud so much that Freud asked him to write a similar book about psychoanalysis. Vierek's trip to meet with Freud led to a series of interviews throughout Europe with people like George Bernard Shaw, Benito Mussolini, Albert Einstein, Marshall Foch, and Nikola Tesla, among others, with Tesla and Vierek becoming good friends. Vierek also interviewed Adolf Hitler in 1923, when Hitler was still in the midst of his steep rise to ultimate power in Germany. He was one of the few American fascists to come face to face with the Fuhrer himself. Vierek mostly gave Hitler an open platform to expound on his favorite topics, how, quote, the state and the race are one, and the body politic must be sound if the soul is to be healthy, and to stay healthy they must have room to breathe and room to work, which means expanding their territory eastward, and so forth. Hitler ended the interview by railing against Marxism, practically shouting that, quote, in my scheme of the German state there will be no room for the alien, no use for the wastrel, for the usurer or speculator or anyone incapable of productive work. Unquote. Note the coded language about usurers and speculators, which was a reference to Jews. A performance like this might have frightened or disgusted a different person, but Sylvester Vierick came away, in his own words, dazzled by Hitler, declaring him, quote, a widely read, thoughtful, and self-made man, unquote, despite all the evidence to the contrary. Perhaps something in Hitler spoke directly to that part of Vierick's psyche that still hopelessly entangled his own self-image with his father's memory and his idealized Germanness. Vierick was financially ruined by the onset of the Great Depression in 1929. So in 1931, he made contact with the German consulate in New York and offered to work with them and the German government to coordinate a propaganda campaign in the United States on behalf of the Nazis for the sum of $500 a month. Over the next few years, Vierick tirelessly defended Nazi Germany against all its American critics. He worked with the public relations firm of Karl Bueuer and Associates to promote German tourism. He wrote about the virtues of the German fascist state as compared with American democracy. He even tried to silence Kurt Ludica, an ex-Nazi agent who tried to expose German propaganda efforts in the US. And the whole time, Vierick claimed that he, quote, never received one penny from Hitler, which was technically true, since he was paid mostly through officials in Berlin and other intermediaries. But it's possible that Vierick would have been a spokesman for the Nazis for free. His desire to defend Germany was instinctual and reflexive, since it really amounted to personally defending himself. And his closeness to the German government meant he knew more than most Americans about the atrocities being committed by the Nazis. Yet he nonetheless defended German anti-Semitism parroting the party line that the Jews had only themselves to blame for their suffering. But he was not, he claimed, a spy or some kind of foreign agent. He was simply serving to inform Americans by making the truth public. By 1936, Vierick was considered invaluable by the propaganda arm of the German Foreign Office. He worked directly for the German Embassy, performing various tasks, including as a liaison to various U.S. senators and congressmen. These legislators were valuable contacts because their offices could be used to mass mail large amounts of propaganda, usually items written by Vierick. 
One of these items was a weekly Nazi propaganda newsletter edited by Vierek from 1939 to 1941 called Facts in Review, which had a readership of about 100,000. He also founded the Flanders Hall Publishing House in 1939 to produce and distribute more propaganda, including some texts sent straight from Berlin. Vierek weathered all the criticism leveled against him, in part because no one knew the true extent of his connection to the German government until several years later. But in 1940, Vierek finally fell from grace. The fall of France in June of 1940 gave many Americans second thoughts about American neutrality, and the tide began to turn against German apologists and Nazi propagandists like Sylvester Vierek. In September 1941, Vierek was indicted by a grand jury investigating foreign propaganda in the U.S for not registering as a foreign agent under the Foreign Agents Registration Act of 1938. The same law, incidentally, used in 2018 to prosecute Paul Manafort, the manager of Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. Upton Sinclair, the American author, sent Vierek a letter where he wrote, quote, If there is anybody in America who is doing Satan's work, you are the man. If there is a Benedict Arnold of this war, you are he, unquote. Despite the efforts of various U.S. senators and congressmen who were isolationists, fascist sympathizers, or both, to free him, Vierek was convicted. He was fined $1,500 and served one year in prison. His wife Margaret begged him to repudiate the Nazis and confess his part in supporting their murderous regime. But Vierek viciously turned on her and said she had betrayed him. He was the true victim, he said persecuted for his German ancestry and stripped of his constitutional rights. While already in prison, he was indicted again for conspiracy to undermine the morale of the armed forces through his prolific propaganda efforts. In March 1943, the U.S. Supreme Court threw out some of the earlier conviction for various reasons, but in July that same year, Vierek was convicted a second time on the original charge of violating the FARA and was sentenced to another one to five years in prison. Vierek continued to defend himself, and it seemed that he really was incapable of seeing any contradiction between his affection for German fascism and his professed loyalty to the United States. With his indictment for subverting troop morale still pending, Vierek was indicted yet again in 1943, and finally under the Smith Act in 1944. 1944 was also the year his youngest son, Corporal George Sylvester Vierek Jr., died in the brutal fighting on the beaches of Anzio in Italy. This was too much for Margaret to bear. She left Sylvester Vierek permanently, converted to Catholicism, and devoted herself to religious and community service to atone for her husband's immorality. Vierek, for his part, complained angrily that she had given his money, quote, to Jewish refugee committees in the Catholic Church, unquote. Vierek still had several defenders, who believed that he had been deprived of his full rights as a citizen. They might have felt differently had they known how closely he worked with the Nazi German government. In any event, their efforts led to Vierek's release from prison in 1947. He continued to write with some success, but apart from some pieces supporting Joseph McCarthy in the Red Scare, he refrained from political activity. In 1959, he moved to Holyoke, Massachusetts, where he lived with his son Peter, a successful author and historian in his own right, until his death from a stroke on March 1st, 1962, when he went to his grave utterly convinced that he had done nothing wrong.
Another American fascist who rose to fame as a writer and styled himself an intellectual was one of the strangest figures of the trial of 1944. Indeed, one of the oddest Americans of the 20th century, a man named William Dudley Pelly. He could easily take up an entire podcast episode on his own, so we'll have to gloss over a few details, unfortunately. Pelly was born in Lynn, Massachusetts in 1890. He made his way as a self-taught writer and found acclaim with his early articles and short stories. This led to a commission by the Methodist Church to travel to Methodist missions around the world and write about what he found there. In 1918, he was on assignment in Japan when the Bolshevik Revolution erupted in Russia. Stuck in Japan, Pelly crisscrossed the island nation looking for material for new articles. At one point, he encountered a man named George S. Phelps. Phelps was the international secretary of the Far East for the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA. Phelps offered to pay for Pelly's travel and arranged transportation if Pelly would go to Siberia as part of the YMCA's Red Triangle unit to write about the YMCA's work in Russia and scope out potential locations for future YMCA facilities. Pelly went to the Japanese port city of Tsuruga to wait for his ship that would take him to Russia, and while he was waiting, Pelly met an American surgeon, whose name he never divulged, who was also heading to Siberia. This surgeon spun out a grand Jewish conspiracy that blamed Jews for the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and thus the Great War, and for the Russian Revolution which was really intended to create a Jewish homeland in Russia. Pelly was apparently fascinated by this anti-Semitic conspiracy, and it planted a seed in him that was to come to full bloom much later. Departing in Vladivostok, Pelly found himself traveling through Siberia in a canteen car that was part of an Allied troop train, taking photographs and writing reports for the YMCA, but focusing now on how best to turn Russian youth away from what he called, quote, satanic Leninism. Local American authorities turned Pelly into a kind of ersatz espionage agent, using his photographs and reports to gather intelligence for their own purposes. He avoided actual combat, but sometimes it was a close call, as the white Russians and the Bolshevik forces constantly clashed across the countryside. He witnessed firsthand the misery inflicted by the conflict on the poor Russian peasants, misery he blamed on the communists, which of course were Jews in his mind. And he worried about what would happen if the virus of Jewish communism spread to the United States. Pelly's journeys finally took him to the city of Harbin in the northern Chinese area of Manchuria in November 1918. Now that the Russian Revolution was over, Harbin became the epicenter of expatriate Russian fascism. And the most notable figure among this motley group was Anastas Vonsiatsky. Vonsiatsky would later move to the U.S. and found the all-Russian fascist organization based in Putnam, Connecticut. And like Pelly, he would later be jailed for sedition. Pelly and Vonsiatsky would remain in contact, offering each other support for the next few decades. Pelly returned to the U.S. in 1920. His continued success as a writer led him to move to Hollywood to try his hand at screenwriting. He became close friends with the famed actor Lon Chaney, known as the Man of a Thousand Faces, for his skill with makeup and disguises. Their families spent evenings and weekends together, with Cheney usually cooking dinner. But the films Pelly wrote were middling at best, and he found himself increasingly alienated from what he considered the degenerate Hollywood lifestyle. Eventually, Pelly ended his friendship with the Cheneys and left Hollywood in disgust, blaming his lack of success not on his own mediocre work, but instead on the Jews. 
which in his mind controlled the film industry. One evening in 1928, Pelly was lying on his bed in his bungalow in Altadena reading some racist literature when he nodded off. He awoke in the early morning with a start, feeling something like what he called a combination of heart attack and apoplexy. A voice inside his head screamed, I'm dying. Suddenly, the pain faded and Pelly sank into a, quote, mystic depth of cool blue space. Frightened, Pelly closed his eyes, and when he opened them, he was lying on a marble slab, naked, with two men standing next to him. They were dressed in white uniforms, and seemed familiar somehow. They told Pelly not to be scared. They had him bathe in a reflecting pool nearby, which made him feel less self-conscious. One of the men who called himself William explained to Pelly that they were currently on a different plane of reality, a kind of afterlife, and Pelly was there to receive an important spiritual lesson. William explained that the Earth was a kind of classroom where souls grow and learn over the course of numerous reincarnations. These souls move up the spiritual ladder, represented on the material plane by the different races. The black race was, of course, the bottom rung of the ladder, and as humans developed spiritually, they would move upwards each cycle to reach the top rung, which was, of course, the white race. Pelly returned to consciousness in the material plane, having learned his first lesson. But the mysterious William kept in contact with Pelly and would speak to him from time to time. Pelly now found that he had what he called strange powers of perception, possibly to aid him in some greater mission of which he was not yet aware. This was the pivotal moment of Pelly's life. He shortly abandoned his failing attempts at screenwriting and decided to return to New York, where he would stay with some friends. While riding the train through New Mexico, he was reading an essay by Ralph Waldo Emerson when he was struck by a beam of blinding white light. A voice proclaimed to Pelly that the Christian churches and ministers of the world were leading their followers astray from Jesus Christ's true teachings. Pelly's ultimate task, finally revealed to him, was to use his newfound powers and his connection with the other planes of existence to lead the world down the correct spiritual path. And now, let's take a quick break to hear a word from one of our sponsors. Now, three ways you can help yourself and help the dealer who supplies you with parquet margarine, the delicious craft quality spread for bread. First, to save valuable shopping time, know the point value of rationed foods. Parquet margarine, by the way, still requires only two ration points a pound. Second, plan menus a week in advance and serve the most nourishing foods available. And, of course, serve economical parquet margarine as often as you can. It's such a splendid energy food and is fortified by craft so that every pound contains 9,000 units of vitamin A. And now a third important point. To conserve paper vitally needed in the war, avoid useless wrapping. Don't ask your dealer to wrap packaged foods. And that means the attractive yellow and blue package, too. Yes, the one that contains that delicious nourishing spread for bread, Parquet. That's P-A-R-K-A-Y. Parquet margarine. Tomorrow, buy Parquet, made by Kraft. When Pelly finally arrived in New York, he met a friend of his named Mary Dario, who was also the fiction editor for The American Magazine. Pelly had no background at all in spiritualism or the occult, but Dario was connected to various spiritualist organizations, including the influential American Society for Psychical Research. She made it her mission to help Pelly understand his experiences and tap into his potential abilities. 
With her help, he analyzed his experiences, eventually writing down an account of his initial experience titled Seven Minutes in Eternity. Using a writing process he called Super Radio in less than two hours. Dario was able to get her editor to publish the account in the March 1929 issue of the American Magazine. The reader response was huge. Pelly's account was immensely popular. Pelly spent the summer of 1929 responding to thousands of letters from readers and moving in the social circles of occult New York, all of which were also fascinated by Pelly's article. He slowly but surely began to incorporate ideas from these various groups into his own beliefs, like a belief in the power of pyramids taken from David Davidson, and a belief that ancient advanced societies had existed and been destroyed, borrowed from Helena Blavatsky and her Theosophical Society, and the notion that America would be the nation to enlighten the world, taken from the cult leaders Guy and Edna Ballard. Pelly became more and more convinced of his own cosmic importance. Eventually, in the wake of the Great Depression, Pelly moved to Asheville, North Carolina in 1932, where he wove together his various strands of literary imagination, Christian occult mysticism, and virulent anti-Semitism into a kind of fascist metaphysics. To promote his ideas, Pelly founded Galahad College in Asheville in 1932, offering correspondence courses in topics like Christian economics and social metaphysics. Galahad Press published various periodicals and books outlining Pelly's ideas. And then on January 30, 1933, the day after Adolf Hitler was named Chancellor of Germany, Pelly announced the founding of his own American paramilitary fascist organization called the Silver Legion. They called themselves the Silver Shirts, modeled after the brown shirts of Nazi Germany. The uniform consisted of obviously a silver shirt with a blue necktie and blue corduroy trousers with leggings. Each shirt displayed a red capital letter L across the left breast. The L stood for love, loyalty, and liberation. Pelly was the national commander of the organization, which was headquartered in Asheville with nine divisions. Each division had various departments, local posts, industrial relations, junior activities, foreign affiliates, and the Silver Rangers. The latter group were paramilitary bands of 100 men each. In addition to these regional divisions and departments, the Silver Legion had departments based around specific issues like crime erasement, public enlightenment, and patriotic probity. The Public Morals and Mercy department would have the job of censoring the press and the film industry and rounding up so-called vagabonds and putting them in concentration camps. New recruits to the Silver Legion had to be white, Christian, 18 years old, and able to afford $6 for the uniform and $10 in annual dues. Applicants had to submit a photo of themselves, along with information about their military experience, financial situation, and exact hour and minute of birth. They also had to sign a pledge to, quote, respect and sustain the sanctity of the Christian ideal, to exalt patriotism and pride of race, and so on. There were nine indoctrination meetings, one a week, directed by the local Council of Safety, mostly going over the assigned readings, two of which were books by Pelly. His book, No More Hunger, described Pelly's new social system, which he called the Christian Commonwealth, a blend of capitalist theocracy with nationalized industry and social welfare programs, run by and for white Christians only. In 1933, the first branch of the Silver Shirts opened in Los Angeles. 
Within a year, the LA branch had recruited 3,000 members. There was a great deal of interest in the silver shirts in California in general, with six local branches appearing in Los Angeles alone. Some of the California silver shirts were fascinated with Pelly's metaphysical ideas and focused their efforts in that area, but other groups were open about the fact that they could make no sense at all of Pelly's religious writings. Instead, they focused on preparing for armed conflict with the communist infiltrators and subversives that were just over the horizon. In San Diego, the branch leader there, a man named Willard Kemp, decided to stop preparing and strike first. He armed his 200 followers with U.S. military rifles, purchased through two corrupt servicemen stationed at the North Island Naval Base Armory. Kemp hired two U.S. Marine Corps drill instructors to train his men at a heavily fortified ranch near El Cajon and offered to buy from the two Marines as many weapons as they could get their hands on. Kemp had plans to assassinate various Jewish public officials and stage a fully armed march through the streets of San Diego during an upcoming May Day celebration. When the two drill instructors realized exactly what they had been hired to do, they promptly reported everything to their superiors. They were told to keep working for the San Diego Silver Shirts and gather information that could be reported to U.S. Naval Intelligence and used against the Silver Shirts later. That time would come in August 1934. A special session met of the Special House Congressional Subcommittee on Un-American Activities. They heard testimony from the two Marines as well as several Silver Legion members and former members. The legislators were, to put it mildly, freaked out. The government started keeping a very close eye on Pelly and the Silver Shirts, and it didn't take long before they found evidence of financial shenanigans within the group. Adding to Pelly's problems, was the widespread sense that he was an agent of Nazi Germany. In fact, despite Pelly's vocal support for Hitler's regime, the Nazis had little contact with Pelly or the Silver Legion and never gave him any financial support. But Pelly believed that being associated with Hitler boosted his status and overall visibility, so he encouraged reporters and others to think that he had high-level ties to the Nazi order. The Nazis did invite Pelly to one of their congresses in 1938, but they were torn between their long-standing desire to cultivate American followers and their disgust with Pelly's esoteric Christianity. Pelly's belief system was often a sticking point between him and other right-wing and fascist American leaders who otherwise might have worked more closely together. Pelly did have some followers who would go on to be hugely influential fascist or pseudo-fascist figures in their own right later, including Gerald L.K. Smith, who had found the America First Party in 1944 and later funded the building of the Christ of the Ozarks statue in Arkansas, and Francis Parker Yaki, whose writings would be seminal for the following generations of white nationalists. Yaki was part of the Chicago Silver Shirts, who were known for being especially violent. In late October 1939, at least four Chicago Silver Shirts attacked a department store owned by a Jewish man. They smashed the store windows and painted swastikas on the walls. Another prominent member was Henry Lamont Beach, better known as Mike Beach, who later became the chief proponent of the Posse Comitatus movement, which led to the contemporary sovereign citizen and paramilitary groups in the U.S. Even some of Pelly's more unusual ideas were influential, especially his belief that human life on Earth came from the Sirius star system. Pelly believed that 30 to 50 million years ago, disembodied souls from Sirius migrated to Earth in various forms, first appearing in bodies that looked like sphinxes, then moving to ape-like forms and gradually 
morphing into modern human bodies. This apparently reconciled evolution with creationism. Sirius became a popular topic in occult and New Age circles in the 1970s, so even if Pelly wasn't influential here, he was definitely ahead of his time. But to return to our timeline, by the late 1930s, Pelly was seen as a potential threat by the U.S. government. In 1940, his national headquarters in Asheville was raided by federal marshals, who seized his property and arrested his followers. Pelly was already involved in various legal battles over his followers' violence and his own financial fraud. Then, President Roosevelt ordered FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover to personally investigate the silver shirts. The Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941 was the death knell for the Silver Legion, as it was for many Nazi and pro-Nazi groups in the U.S., but even after Pelly disbanded the Silver Legion and moved to Noblesville, Indiana, he kept up his attacks on the government, who had probably expected him to back off. In April 1942, Pelly was arrested, charged with 12 counts of high treason and sedition. He was convicted and sentenced to 15 years in prison, and was serving that sentence when he was indicted in 1944. He served eight years, and then was paroled in the early 1950s. After his release, Pelly merged his existing beliefs, which he came to call Liberation Doctrine, with the newly popular belief in UFOs and alien abduction, the origins of which I discussed in Episode 1 of Imaginary Histories. He called this new doctrine Soulcraft, and it would go on to be influential in some circles of science fiction, conspiracy theory, and UFOlogy. I wish I had time to explain Soulcraft. That might be a topic for a different episode, so we'll leave his story here for now. Pelly lived out the rest of his life in Noblesville, passing away on June 30th, 1965. These boys are, are apparently having uh, a pretty tough time in here on the beaches. It's not very pleasant. Uh, it's exposed, and it must have been a rugged fight to get it. We can look on down the coast now and see this flat part of the beach which uh, joins the water going all the way down to the lower beach which is marked for us by columns of white smoke which are rising from it. And further up at the end of this beach we can see another huge column of white smoke which has apparently been caused by naval gunfire. Looking out to sea all we can see of the vast invasion fleet which is assembled for us are the silhouettes of the big warships, the uh, battleships and cruisers which have been putting uh, a steady bombardment against the enemy positions all day. The troops are well dug in here along the seawall which is partly covered by sand. Uh, they're sitting down now, uh, most of them, dug deep into the ground, close as close as they can to the seawall to protect themselves from the enemy shelling. We're standing here. It's an absolutely incredible and fantastic sight. I don't know whether it's possible to describe it to you or not. The sea uh, is, is choppy, and the beach is lined with men and materials and uh, guns, trucks, vehicles of all kinds uh, on either side of us. There are pillars of smoke, perhaps a mile, two miles away, which are rising from enemy shelling. And further back, we can see the smoke and results of our own shelling. This place even smells like an invasion. It has a curious odor, which uh, we 
always associated with modern war is the smell of oil and high explosive and burning things. This has been a momentous occasion for all of us. Less colorful, but no less influential than William Dudley Pelly, was the minister from Kansas, Gerald Burton Winrod. Winrod was actually born in Illinois on March 7, 1900, but soon moved to Kansas with his parents and always considered that state his home. Winrod's path to the ministry began before he was even born. Winrod's father, John, had been a bartender at the old 410 Saloon in Wichita. One day, the temperance crusader Carrie Nation arrived and smashed everything to pieces. This awakened something in John Winrod, and he became a religious man. A few years later, John's wife lay dying. As he prayed for her, her illness ebbed away, and she was healed in what seemed to be a miracle. John felt like he had been sent a message, and he became the Christian minister. Gerald Winrod absorbed this religiosity as a child. When he was still a teenager, he delivered his first sermon. By 1921, he had joined the Chautauqua Lecture Circuit. He traveled for months at a time, giving guest sermons at pulpits in small-town churches, giving addresses over local radio stations, or sometimes speaking while driving around in a car fitted with loudspeakers. He slowly grew his audience of Midwestern church-going farmers, who he always considered his core followers. While traveling and speaking through his 20s, he began to read about communism. He quickly came to the conclusion that communism was a scourge and the Jews were responsible for it, taking the protocols of the elders of Zion at face value. To be fair, he also loathed Catholics. In 1925, he started his own magazine, The Defender, to spread his ideas. The following year, his son Gordon was born. 1933 was a pivotal year for Winrod. When the first New Deal reforms were announced by President Roosevelt, Winrod was horrified, considering the wide-ranging social programs as essentially communism. Winrod was also disgusted with FDR for recognizing the Soviet Union, also in 1933, and for repealing prohibition. When Winrod's car was hit by a drunk driver, he sent a telegram to the White House, holding Roosevelt personally responsible and demanding to be reimbursed for the repairs, but it was never acknowledged. Winrod's anti-Semitism blended with his rage at the government and he decided that it only made sense that FDR, all evidence to the contrary, must actually be Jewish. Winrod wrote an article in 1934 purporting to show that President Roosevelt had ancestors that were Dutch Jews. He referred to him as Rosenvelt, and claimed he was beholden to Jewish economic interests, and thus under communist influence, since Jews and communists were, to him, identical. This article was widely reprinted and was republished in 1936 with an authentic-looking genealogical chart. This version was even more popular. Anti-Semites and Nazi propagandists in the U.S. loved Winrod's coinage of Rosenvelt and often used it in their own screeds over the next 10 years. Winrod also attacked Eleanor Roosevelt for doing things like smoking and speaking to African-American groups. The Nazi government took notice of and seconded Winrod's attacks on Roosevelt, so when he visited Germany during his trip through Europe in 1934 and 35, it seemed to many U.S. government observers that Winrod might in fact be a Nazi agent. But there's no evidence that the German government paid for his trip or even paid him to propagandize on their behalf at all. Winrod did meet with a German publisher named Ulrich Fleischhauer, who was one of the most prominent anti-Semitic publishers in Germany. 
who at that time was defending five men in Switzerland who were being prosecuted for distributing copies of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Woodward came away from his meeting with Fleischhauer more convinced than ever that there was a nefarious international Jewish communist conspiracy intent on controlling the world. Fleischhauer was the publisher of World Service, a cheap anti-Semitic bulletin that was widely distributed in the U.S. in an English translation. It was considered mandatory reading by figures like William Dudley Pelley, who often reprinted World Service articles in his own periodicals. Robert Edward Edmondson, another influential fascist author and publisher who was part of the 1944 trial, and of course, Gerald Burton Winrod, who praised it as a, quote, reliable source of European information in 1937. The reality was the Nazis didn't have to pay Winrod to propagandize on their behalf as he, like George Sylvester Vierick, was happy to do it for free. Starting in 1935, Winrod began working praise for Hitler into his regular sermons and speeches, as well as the Defender. In an April 1935 article, Winrod compared Martin Luther to Adolf Hitler in 1920, when he was, quote, a struggling young Austrian. Later in 1935, Winrod quoted the vicious Nazi propagandists Joseph Goebbels and Julius Streicher while making the case that Nazi Germany was on the right path, since it was the only nation standing up to, quote, Jewish Masonic occultism, Jewish communism, and the international Jewish money power, unquote. He became close with other far-right figures, especially Gerald L. K. Smith and Elizabeth Dilling, who we'll get to soon enough. Finally, Winrod decided the time had come for him to personally enter the political arena in order to better do God's work. In 1938, he ran for the Republican nomination in Kansas for United States Senator. He temporarily toned down his anti-Semitism, at least in public, as he gained nationwide attention for the first time. Winrod had a loyal base among German-speaking Mennonites in Kansas, who related to his support for Germany, his opposition to joining the European War, and his religious fundamentalism. With their solid support, it seemed possible that Winrod might get elected. But by now, Winrod had been given the nickname the Jayhawk Nazi by journalist James True, and the name stuck. Sometimes he was also called the Jayhawk Hitler, Jayhawk meaning Kansan. The Kansas State Republicans were not interested in being represented by Winrod. They lured former Kansas Governor Clyde Reed out of retirement to run against him. Reed was still a popular figure in Kansas politics and a progressive to boot, in sharp contrast to Winrod. Winrod's Mennonite supporters stuck with him, and he did well in areas where the Ku Klux Klan had been powerful in the 1920s, years earlier. But it wasn't enough. The voters overwhelmingly chose Reed. Winrod came in third, with about 21% of the vote. Clyde Reed would serve in the Senate until his death in 1949. Despite this loss, Winrod continued to write and speak on behalf of Nazi Germany and agitated to keep the U.S. out of the war. In April 1939, Winrod delivered seven isolationist radio broadcasts from his radio station based in Ciedras Negras in Mexico. One of these was entered into the congressional record by Robert Rice Reynolds, who we mentioned earlier. That same year, Winrod printed and distributed thousands of anti-war pamphlets, stickers, petitions to various addresses around Washington, D.C. He also hosted a visit from the German Methodist Episcopal Bishop F.H. Otto Mella, who would often travel on German government-sponsored speaking tours through the U.S., supporting the Nazis and endorsing Hitler as the savior of Germany. Winrod would publish three of Mella's sermons in his magazine. By 1940, 
Winrod's wife, Frances, had reached her limit. She filed for divorce and requested police protection from her husband. The FBI wasted little time in interviewing Frances. We don't know exactly what she told them, but some details were leaked to the press. Apparently, Gerald taught his children that Germany was superior to France and England, and he openly admired Hitler. He also believed that the collapse of the U.S. government was imminent, probably through violent revolution. He told Francis that he had a hideout in Wyoming, where she could wait out the unrest, after which she would be his first lady when their side won, and he was appointed by God to rule over America. Winrod kept a loaded gun at their bedside to be ready for the coming violence. And all of this was part of Winrod's divine destiny. It's not surprising that Frances would want to separate herself from this man, but nevertheless, Frances and Gerald remarried a few years later. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, Winrod stood apart from most of his peers by continuing to publicly and strenuously condemn U.S. involvement in the war. By the time the U.S. government decided to indict various figures on the far right in 1942, the FBI was fairly convinced that Winrod was either an active Axis agent or at the very least had played into their hands, giving them a powerful voice of propaganda, and he was at the top of their list. Winrod was indicted on July 21, 1942, and January 4, 1943, before becoming part of the mass sedition trial in 1944. As I'll describe shortly, the trial was a chaotic mess, ending with the death of the original presiding judge and the dropping of all charges by the succeeding judge. The first judge, Edward Eicher, had died suddenly of a heart attack, which famously led Winrod to take credit for his death through the prayers of his defenders. Quote, Christians all over the nation were praying, he said in a 1945 radio address. Quote, the judge was found dead in bed that night. Winrod came out of the 1944 sedition trial stronger than ever, for now he could claim to be persecuted by the government conspiracy he had always warned against. He even had the nerve to publicly compare himself to the German theologian Martin Niemöller, the renowned Lutheran minister who was also an outspoken opponent of the Nazis, for which crime he was imprisoned for seven years in various concentration camps. Winrod continued to speak and publish, moving away from openly supporting fascism and shifting his focus to relentlessly attacking communism, which was more socially acceptable in the early 1950s. He also sponsored missions into Mexico and Puerto Rico, where there are still some remnants of his church to this day. By 1947, he had begun to suffer from multiple sclerosis. Despite this, he carried on a vigorous campaign against his local paper, the Wichita Beacon, especially when they began to investigate how Winrod was handling his finances. Winrod died of pneumonia, on November 11, 1957. But his hateful work was carried on by his son, Gordon, a minister in his own right, who became part of the Christian identity movement. But Gordon went a step further than his father and tried to become a full-on cult leader. He quickly gained followers based around the same anti-Semitism, fundamentalism, and apocalyptic Christian prophecy as his father. In the mid-1990s, Gordon Winrod kidnapped six of his own grandchildren ages 9 to 16, from their home in North Dakota, and took them to his farm in Ozark County, Missouri, to brainwash them. Various law enforcement agents raided the farm in 2000. Gordon was arrested, but he had to be returned to the farm in order to convince the children to come out from a hidden bunker, as they were now conditioned to shoot at police with weapons Gerald had provided them with. 
He was sentenced to 30 years in federal prison, but after serving 10 of those years, he was released. He still leads a cult of up to 100 followers. In 2017, it was reported that Gerald's daughter, who served time in jail for abetting the kidnapping of her own children, had purchased an abandoned schoolhouse in Colm, North Dakota, with the intention of settling the cult there. But almost a year after those reports, no one is sure what Gordon's plans really are. Now a short message from General Electric. In May 1942, a bazooka was a musical instrument. In June 1942, it became a rocket gun. The bazooka is famous for more than its purely American nickname. One American soldier with one shot from a bazooka knocked out a German fort, causing its surrender. Another yank armed with a bazooka knocked out two Japanese tanks. The birth of the bazooka is a dramatic tale, a tale of work night and day by General Electric engineers and manufacturing crews to deliver a rocket gun requested by the Army Ordnance Department. It took four days to build the first bazooka. After two weeks of testing and improving, production was started. Seven days later, the Army's entire first order for several thousand had been completed. And today, bazookas are playing an important part on every battlefront. This is Douglas Edwards speaking for the General Electric Company, first in the world of electrical research, in radio and electronics, in electrical household appliances, and in equipment for producing electric light and power for the home, industry, and transportation. Tune in General Electric's The World Today every weekday night at the same time, and tomorrow night on another network, listen to General Electric's audition to find the undiscovered voice of America broadcast on the General Electric All-Girl Orchestra program. Back the attack. Buy another war bond. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. To observers in 1944... William Dudley Pelley would not have been the most unusual figure at the trial of U.S. First McWilliams. That distinction would have gone to Elizabeth Dilling, for the simple reason that she was a woman. Dilling was born Elizabeth Kirkpatrick in Chicago in 1894, and grew up in a family made wealthy through her older brother's Hawaii real estate business. She was known by her friends for her intelligence and near-photographic memory, her devout religiosity, and her struggles with depression. Dilling dreamed of becoming a musician, and in 1912, she enrolled at the University of Chicago to study the harp. But after three years, she found herself deeply unhappy, and it's not clear if she ever graduated. She began her intensive study of the Bible during those years, and became a devout Catholic. At some point, she met Albert Dilling, an engineer going to law school at night who also attended Elizabeth's church. They fell for each other, and after a nine-month courtship, they were married in 1918. Albert got a job as chief engineer for the Chicago Sewerage District, and with Elizabeth's family money, they had a comfortable life in the Wilmette suburbs outside Chicago. And together, they would have two children in the 1920s. Elizabeth immediately found herself, like many middle-class women before her, torn between her desire for a career of her own and the expectation that she be satisfied in the roles of wife and mother. During this time, Elizabeth's attitudes towards God and country congealed and then hardened. She became a devoted listener of Father Coughlin. Her religious piety curdled into harsh Catholic fundamentalism. Her love of country twisted itself into fanatical patriotism, which in turn led her to loathe anything that struck her as liberal, including the New Deal and the Democratic Party in general. 
Despite this personal rigidity, Dilling loved to travel abroad with her husband, and she especially liked to take home movies as they went. But wherever they went, Dilling seemed to find that the Jews and their allies had ruined things. She came away from her 1923 trip to Italy, France, and the UK, feeling that the British were ungrateful for American aid in the Great War. As a result, she became a committed isolationist. In 1928, they traveled across Europe and North Africa to the Middle East, and in 1931, they traveled to the West Indies and Venezuela. But the most important trip of Dilling's life came in the summer of 1931. The family spent a month in the Soviet Union, specifically Moscow and Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. Dilling was appalled by communism's rejection of religion, though she was also convinced that the communists she met must have been Jews, and she was horrified by the overall poverty she encountered. The locals supposedly told Dilling of their future plans to turn the world communist. She returned to Wilmette convinced that America was under threat from the forces of Jewish communism, a refrain which, if you've been listening to this point, should sound familiar. 1931 was also a turning point for Dilling because she almost had a nervous breakdown. For whatever reason, she found both her study of the communist menace and her travel to be therapeutic, so she read and studied voraciously. Her attempts to understand the nature of the communist threat led her into the circle of Iris McCord, a member of the right-wing Moody Bible Institute, and host of a local radio program broadcast over Chicago's station WMBI. McCord arranged for Dilling to speak over the airwaves about her experiences in Red Russia. This led to invitations from the American Legion and the Daughters of the American Revolution to show her home movies and give her anti-communist lecture. Soon she was giving her presentation to various Catholic colleges and women's clubs, the Knights of Columbus, and other groups eager to hear a first-hand account of the nature of the communist menace. She always warned her audiences that communists and their propaganda had already infiltrated the U.S. College and university students were especially vulnerable to subversion. Chicago, as the Silver Shirts found, was receptive to Dilling's anti-communist, anti-Semitic roadshow. By now, her public speaking had gone from a hobby to a calling, and she was speaking sometimes five times a week, lecturing across the Midwest and Northeast. She incorporated various props into her show, such as communist newspapers and banners, and YMCA and YWCA material, as she considered them communist front groups. Her husband, Albert, would accompany Dilling on the piano, as she sang songs about the Red Menace, alternating with scathing humor and earnest rhetoric. Her shows would often last two hours. The highlight for most audiences was Dilling's mocking impression of Eleanor Roosevelt, whom she would imitate with an exaggerated Yiddish accent. Her audiences loved it. She presented her audiences with several contradictions all at once. A woman who claimed to be just an average person, yet also a worldly expert in anti-communism. A conservative, traditionalist woman who was obviously running this particular show instead of her husband. A mix of feminine humility and compassion with masculine confidence and aggression. It's not hard to see why her audiences, which sometimes reached 100 people, would be fascinated by her, just as Americans are with similar women like Ann Coulter, Laura Ingram, and Tommy Lahren in 2018. Now a local celebrity, she began finding right-wing allies across the U.S. The most prominent of these was a man named Henry Young. Young ran the American Vigilante Intelligence Federation, which kept files on information of over a million Americans suspected of being communists or communist sympathizers, usually through their involvement in labor unions. And Young mostly used his information to aid labor-busting activities. 
Young was also a virulent racist and anti-Semite. He was the first major American distributor for the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Young found a kindred spirit in Dilling and sent her as much information as she requested. For her part, Dilling seems to have come away from working with Young convinced that civil rights and racial equality were really communist plots, an attitude that would become commonplace in conservative political discourse after the war. Dilling also worked closely with Nelson Hewitt, head of a group called the Chicago Advisory Associates, which also tracked the Red Menace in America. In 1932, Dilling collaborated with a U.S. Army colonel living in Chicago named Edwin Marshall Hadley to form a group called the Paul Revere's, a group devoted to patriotically stopping the spread of communism into schools and churches. Additionally, membership in the Paul Revere's was open to all Americans, regardless of color or creed, and Dilling was the national treasurer. But then in 1933, the San Diego chapter of the Paul Revere's decided that Jews were not welcome to join. Dilling disagreed with this, but Hadley backed them up, and Dilling resigned, showing that there might have been some limits to her anti-Semitism, at least at that time. And the organization folded soon after. This experience convinced her to listen to what her fans had been telling her for some time now. She needed to get her message published in print so it could reach a nationwide audience. Her first pamphlet was called Red Revolution, Do We Want It Here? It included her usual recounting of her experiences in the Soviet Union, as well as her usual warnings about the communist influence present at the University of Chicago and Northwestern. She also warned that those she called parlor pinks had, quote, delicately sugar-coated raw communism for the literary North Shore society. These communist sympathizers, she said, quote, usually posed as neutrals, liberals, and lovers of mental freedom, unquote. But in reality, they were conspiring to violently overthrow the government, weaken the armed forces, and, quote, promote free sexual relations among individuals of all ages, unquote. The Daughters of the American Revolution purchased 10,000 copies of Dilling's pamphlet to distribute to their members. The popularity of Red Revolution and her connections with other right-wingers led her to think on a national scale. She found that with her next book in 1934, titled The Red Network, a who's who and handbook of radicalism for patriots. The book described more than 1,300 individuals and 460 organizations, which were, according to Dilling, quote, communist, radical pacifist, anarchist, socialist, or IWW controlled, unquote. These were names Dilling had compiled over years of exhaustive, often chaotic research, sometimes her own, sometimes borrowed from figures like Jung and Hewitt, sometimes simply names her readers had sent her. The book was a mess of falsehoods, half-truths, and guilt by association, naming individuals like Mohandas Gandhi, Chiang Kai-shek, John Dewey, Edna St. Vincent Millay, and Albert Einstein, among many others. The Federal Council of Churches was run by communists, apparently, as was the League of Women Voters. But it didn't matter that it made no sense. What mattered was that it sold 2,000 copies within 10 days, and by 1941 had gone through eight printings. At least 16,000 copies were sold in addition to those given away to various groups like the KKK, the FBI, the German-American Bund, the American Legion, the Aryan Bookstore, the DAR, the New York and Chicago Police Departments, and of course, the Silver Shirts. Let's take another quick break. We'll be right back. Meanwhile, let me pass on the good word about the new Kraft Dinner. This famous macaroni and cheese still cooks in seven minutes. But the new Kraft Dinner gives you a richer, fuller cheese flavor. 
Just what you cheese lovers have been hankering for. The flavor of golden cheddar through and through a dish full of tender, fluffy, light macaroni. And to think you cook it in just seven minutes. When the folks taste the new Kraft dinner, they'll say it's incredible that you could whip up such swell macaroni and cheese so fast. Kraft's tireless research, of course, is responsible for the goodness of the two ingredients in each Kraft dinner box. The special macaroni and the Kraft grater that gives such splendid cheese flavor. Let them work their speed magic in your kitchen to give you point-thrifty, good-eating main dishes. At your food store tomorrow, get a couple of packages of the new Kraft Dinner. Each box makes enough for four servings, and you get two boxes for one single red point. Dilling had finally reached national prominence by 1935, just at the moment when she was becoming overextended. Albert, her only assistant, spent so much time helping her that his law practice almost folded. She had never profited much off her lectures or her writings, and unlike her male counterparts, she had no wealthy backers funding her activities. Now she could command larger speaking fees and had the attention of the captains of industry. Dilling began railing against FDR and especially the New Deal, which she called the Jew Deal publishing another little edited book in an attempt to thwart Roosevelt's re-election to no avail. As a response, Dilling started a monthly bulletin titled The Patriotic Research Bureau, built mostly around those who had attended Dilling's shows and thus were on her mailing list. Among her harsh criticism of the government, she also encouraged her readers to demand that Father Coughlin be allowed to return to the airways, which he was on January 9, 1938, with broadcasts that were more anti-Semitic and fascist in tone than ever. Coughlin's embrace of fascism matched Dilling's behavior as well. In 1938, the German government paid for Dilling to travel to Germany, where she attended Nazi party meetings and had nothing but good things to say about Hitler and the Nazi regime. She also visited Japan that year, which, strangely enough, she considered the only Christian nation in Asia, and also had only good opinions of. In 1940, Dilling published her third book, The Octopus, laying out a vast conspiracy theory that placed the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith at the center of a shadowy web of Jewish and communist organizations, attempting to engineer a communist coup in the U.S. and thus eliminate Christianity from America. The octopus was so openly and hatefully anti-Semitic that Dilling was worried her husband Albert might lose his law practice in the backlash, so she published it under the pseudonym the Reverend Frank Woodruff Johnson. Dilling again hoped her book would turn voters against Roosevelt, but it had even less of an impact than her last, except in the community of American fascists and anti-Semites who gave it rave reviews and again distributed it to their followers. Adding to her appeal among hate mongers was Dilling's new emphasis on racism. She wrote that blacks couldn't be trusted because communists used them as patsies, putting them in the vanguard only to enslave and kill them once they served their purpose. Interracial marriage and relationships were obviously against God. That was why the communists supported them. Even anti-lynching laws were a Trojan horse for communism, as they were really intended to stop the rightful execution of communists by patriotic American citizens. Her racism and anti-Semitism reached such an abhorrent level that she was finally respected as a peer by other American fascist leaders like William Dudley Pelley, Gerald L. K. Smith, Father Coughlin, and Gerald Burton Winrod. Nazi groups in the U.S. gave Dilling her largest speaking platform yet. At one fascist rally in New York, Dilling spoke to an audience of 2,000 people at the Hotel Commodore. 
This in turn led to attention and support from the America First Committee, the largest and most powerful isolationist group in the U.S. Closely affiliated with the America First Committee was the National League of Mothers, another isolationist group made up of American women with sons of military service age. They were determined to keep the U.S. out of the war in Europe. These isolationist groups were not openly sympathetic to fascism, but their membership naturally included thousands who were, including Dilling. By 1941, Dilling had become heavily involved in the National League of Mothers, using the members' maternal concern for their sons and brothers as an opening to inject her own radical anti-Semitism, racism, and fascism into their discourse. The various organizations in what was called the Mothers' Movement had already been infiltrated by women who were Nazis or Nazi sympathizers. These fascist women already knew and admired Dilling, and so they supported her in her efforts. In early 1941, the isolationists put everything they had into defeating the Lend-Lease Act. This was legislation that allowed Britain to borrow or purchase weapons for the duration of the war. Nevertheless, the Lend-Lease came before Congress in February 1941. Dilling, driven as always by her hatred of Roosevelt, saw an opening to mobilize and hopefully radicalize the Mothers' Movement. She called for a march on Washington to protest the law and call for Roosevelt's impeachment. Quote, We want to start a cavalcade to Washington, she said, that will flood the Capitol with petticoats and cause all congressmen who are supporting this bill to reconsider. If necessary, we will lie on our faces on the Senate steps. Unquote. The protesting mothers, led by Dilling, marched through Washington and turned the Capitol building into chaos. Not content to quietly lobby their cause, Dilling, accompanied by her hardcore female followers, pushed her way into legislators' offices or pounded on their doors when they were locked, screaming curses at the senators and congressmen. They sometimes overwhelmed the congressional security forces. Dilling was especially intent on getting to Illinois Senator Scott Lucas, as she felt that he had betrayed her home state to the hated Roosevelt. Dilling and the others waited outside his door for hours, until he finally agreed to meet with them one at a time. At that, Dilling screamed, I don't trust him. We'll all go in. The women pushed through the door. As Lucas tried to shake hands with them, they berated him. One woman grabbed Lucas's ankle and demanded he pray with her. A bit later, Dilling and her secretary were arrested for disorderly conduct. But the next day, they had their charges dismissed and their $5 bail returned to them and the protests continued. On February 27th, Dilling and the other mothers staged a raucous protest outside the office of Virginia Senator Carter Glass. Dilling was arrested again, with the other mothers refusing to disperse and demanding to be arrested along with her, which they were. Dilling was on trial for six days. Each day the courtroom was packed with her supporters along with demonstrators outside the building. The judge agreed with Dilling that she was merely exercising her free speech rights and thus the charge was dropped, but since it was her second arrest, he charged her a fine of $25, the equivalent of over $400 today. While Dilling was on trial, the Senate had been debating Lend-Lease, and despite the increasingly desperate efforts of Dilling and the other protesters, it passed, and Roosevelt signed it into law on March 11th. Dilling had badly damaged the public image of the Mother's Movement and had nothing to show for it. The influence of the Mother's Groups was waning, and after the attack on Pearl Harbor later that year, support for isolationism evaporated almost literally overnight. Only the most strident and radical writers and speakers stayed active in the isolationist groups and the Mothers' Movement, and increasingly, it was they, not some secret cabal of Jewish communists, who seemed intent on undermining America. 
That included Dilling. But she was now embroiled in a personal crisis. She had begun to suspect that her husband, Albert, was cheating on her. She examined his past tax returns and found that he had been funneling large payments to his mistresses for years. Exactly a year after leading her long-dreamt-of revolt in the streets of Washington, D.C., Dilling filed for divorce on February 24, 1942. Albert filed a countersuit, claiming that Dilling was an alcoholic, a drug addict, and a fanatical hate monger. The divorce trial quickly became a media circus. When broadcaster Walter Winchell reported on Albert's suit, Dilling sued Winchell for libel. Fistfights broke out during the trial on a regular basis, sometimes involving Dilling's female supporters. Dilling herself was cited for contempt three times during the trial. At one point, Albert's lawyer demanded that Elizabeth produce a list of all the contributors to the Patriotic Research Bureau, hoping to find the names of known Nazi or fascist agents. As a result of this move, Albert fired his lawyer over worries that he, too, would then be associated with those agents. Finally, in May 1942, Albert dropped his allegations and Elizabeth dropped her libel suit. They agreed to an uncontested divorce. Then, on July 21, 1942, Dilling, along with 27 others, was indicted by the U.S. government on two counts of conspiracy to cause insubordination of the military in peacetime and wartime. Albert and Elizabeth decided not to divorce after all, and he served as Elizabeth's lawyer during this trial. The Dillings finally ended their marriage for good in October 1943, though Albert continued to represent Elizabeth. After various legal maneuvers, Dilling found herself on trial with the others in the April 1944 U.S. v. McWilliams trial, which included new indictments for trying to subvert the U.S. government. Albert and the other lawyers presented a wide-ranging defense against an often unorganized, sometimes half-hearted prosecution. The trial was fast-paced and sometimes chaotic. The strain was too much for Judge Eicher, and as I mentioned earlier, he died of a heart attack on November 29, 1944. A mistrial was declared, and the succeeding judge, Belitha Laws, dismissed the charges. Out of public favor, but still popular with the now-underground fascist movement, Dilling renewed her writing career. She remarried in 1948 at the age of 53 to Jeremiah Stokes, a 70-year-old lawyer from Salt Lake City, Utah. Stokes gave Elizabeth professional and emotional support that she hadn't received from Albert in several years. She threw her support behind Joe McCarthy, and her writings were essential building blocks to the formulation of the Red Scare in the 1950s. In 1954, Jeremiah Stokes died, and a grief-stricken Elizabeth moved in with her son Kirkpatrick, who assisted her in her work. She continued to write and publish, but most of her former followers had moved on. By 1964, her literary powers were declining. Her vicious humor and acid sarcasm replaced with rambling, incoherent screeds. Then her health began to decline, and on April 29, 1966, Dilling died at the age of 72. The 1944 trial, in the end, was a minor disaster for both sides. Government's case came off looking both heavy-handed and sloppy, and the defendants appeared to the public as fringe figures, religious fanatics, Axis stooges, or all of the above, which rendered them less dangerous in the public imagination. The media initially enjoyed reporting on the trial, as it provided excellent copy and striking images, as when Elizabeth Dilling was photographed giving a Nazi salute, which of course might or might not have been done sarcastically. But the papers and radio journalists lost interest after a few weeks 
as the trial dragged on without making much progress, which was a contributing factor to the charges eventually getting dropped. It's hard to set an example if no one's watching. The prosecutor, John Roga, wanted to retry the case after the initial mistrial, as he felt it was his patriotic duty as an American to, quote, stop the spread of racial and religious intolerance, unquote. But the American Civil Liberties Union, the American Jewish Committee, and other civil liberties groups opposed continuing the trial. When Tom Clark came on as President Truman's Attorney General, replacing Francis Biddle, he couldn't make up his mind about continuing to prosecute the American fascists. In the meantime, Roga had conducted research showing links between high-ranking U.S. government officials, including many congressmen and Axis governments, which only increased his resolve. But when Attorney General Tom Clark read Roga's report, he realized it would embarrass too many powerful politicians, including some that were his personal friends, and he buried the report. But then he leaked details of Roga's own report to popular newspaper columnist Drew Pearson, making it look like it was Roga who leaked the info. As a result, Roga was fired from the Department of Justice in October 1946. He continued to warn the public about the influence of the far right on American society, but he was now out of step with the times. The European conflict had entered a new phase, where communism was now the enemy, and figures like Roga had to embrace the new reality or be left behind. The FBI turned their hostile surveillance once again away from the right and towards the left, where they had always been more comfortable anyway. The American fascists of the 1930s and 40s might have lost many battles and faced a host of setbacks, but in the end, they won their own war. Their awful work has been carried forward by new generations of Americans, men like George Lincoln Rockwell, commander of the American Nazi Party, Richard Gernt Butler, founder of the Aryan Nations, Tom Metzger, founder of the White Aryan Resistance, James Wickstrom, creator of the Posse Comitatus Movement, William Pierce, leader of the National Alliance, and many others. Since Charlottesville, Americans have learned the names of Richard Spencer, head of the National Policy Institute, Matthew Heimbach, head of the Traditionalist Workers' Party, John Cameron Denton, leader of the Atomwaffen Division, and Andrew Anglin, publisher of the Daily Stormer, and the list, unfortunately, goes on and on. I hope I've shown that fascism has existed in America for a long time, and has enjoyed tremendous popularity with the public and strong support from the ruling class. But over the last 20 years, the internet has changed American fascism the way it's changed everything else in American society. As you've probably noticed, the people I talked about earlier were primed in some way to receive and accept the core beliefs of fascism in a way that many of us are primed to reject them. And you've also noticed that the economic and social chaos caused by the Great Depression was a major factor in modern fascism taking root in the U.S. The financial collapse of 2007 and 8 seems to have had a similar effect, but this time, the spread of fascist imagery and ideas was magnified thousands of times through modern communication networks and social media sites. It's not an exaggeration to say that despite their best intentions, if we give them the benefit of the doubt, social media platforms created the perfect environment for disseminating fascism across America for the last decade, in a way that McWilliams, Pelly, Bierek, Widrod, and Dilling could never dream of. Charlottesville in 2017 was not the beginning of a new birth of fascism in America, it was a culmination. A volcano of fear and loathing bursting through the crust of normal American society and showing the ever-present hatreds flowing beneath. 
To conclude this episode, I'll leave you with a long quote from Umberto Eco. Quote, We must keep alert so that the sense of these words will not be forgotten again. Ur fascism is still around us, sometimes in plain clothes. It would be so much easier for us if there appeared on the world scene somebody saying, I want to reopen Auschwitz, I want the black shirts to parade again in the Italian squares. Life is not that simple. Ur fascism can come back under the most innocent of disguises. Our duty is to uncover it and to point our finger at any of its new instances, every day, in every part of the world. Franklin Roosevelt's words of November 4, 1938 are worth recalling. Quote, I venture the challenging statement that if American democracy ceases to move forward as a living force, seeking day and night by peaceful means to better the lot of our citizens, fascism will grow in strength in our land. Unquote. Freedom and liberation are an unending task. Put it there, boy, we'll show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do. You may be surprised People in this world are getting organized You're bound to lose You fascists bound to lose Woo! All you fascists bound to lose I said All you fascists bound to lose Yes All you fascists bound to lose You're bound to lose You fascists bound to lose Where a million fascists died, you're bound to lose. You fascists bound to lose.